0: The New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales.
1: Hello again, and welcome to the show. Coming up, we give the latest on the fires and the known as the Hudson fires out near Lightning Ridge, near Walgett there, uh, and uh, the weather. Uh, taking a bit of a turn for the worst today so we'll get the latest from the RFS shortly and also we're going to hear from rice growers they've got their own problems they're reporting the worst duck problems they've battled in decades and many people have been forced to re-sow crops that have been wiped out.
2: The duck numbers are huge at the moment at a sunrise meeting earlier this season they quoted that last year we had one million ducks and this year it's four million so the pressure is certainly up there.
1: And as I said before, you can always send us a text uh, and uh, the number to uh, send uh, the text to is zero four six seven nine double two six eight four. That's the number to text me here at the Country Hour. But first up today, let's uh, find out what's happening with the fires. Of course, uh, some... Uh, um, less than ideal weather at the moment and uh, it, it's uh, 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 getting getting worse at the moment, although I understand that the Hudson Fire, which is the, high betw- uh, the fire between uh, Lightning Ridge and uh, Walgett, uh, joined up a couple of fires yesterday. Uh, the uh, situation is uh, that it's uh, still at advice level. Uh, Deputy Commissioner Peter Keck- McKechnie joins me now. Good afternoon.
3: Yeah, good afternoon.
1: So you are watching this this fire, which has joined up. It's you're calling it the Hudson fire now. It's uh, you, you're watching it closely because of the weather conditions.
3: We are look the conditions out there today. Another challenging day. You know, temps getting up into the really high thirties, low humidities, and look again those strong westerly winds. You know, getting up towards, gusting up towards the forty kilometre an hour mark. So, look, whilst we dropped it back to advice overnight. Um, the threat hasn't you know disappeared and and people in that area need to be you know staying up to date it'll be another challenging day for firefighters so look we're out there talking to the community in glengarry and garwin um but people need to stay up to date today
1: right okay so stay listening to abc local radio uh just an advice at the moment but uh the you know the potentials there and uh extreme fire danger for that region at the moment is that right
3: Look, we do. We've got a few areas with total fire bans today. The northern slopes is one of them in extreme. The northwest and the upper central west that cover this area are a mixture of high and extreme fire dangers. Again, as I say, really hot, some pretty strong westerly winds. Um, We see a little bit of easing in the conditions in coming days, but there's a lot of work we've still got to do to get these fires contained, and we need to get through this more challenging day today yet
1: and any uh thoughts from the weather bureau about the the weather maybe possible rain or you know they're also talking about thunderstorms which is which uh uh you know can also be a bit of an issue too if they particularly if it's dry lightning look we're seeing
3: some better indications of some rain into the next few days and into the weekend but it's further east of where these fires currently are you know impacting right Look, in this area, these thunderstorms are really challenging us. You know, these fires, we, we think they've all come from lightning. We saw some storms through there late last week. We've got hold of most of the fires. Um, but, you know, we ended up with these couple that have taken a significant run. And um, as we saw yesterday, impacted into Glengarry, where we have seen a number of structures lost. We're still trying to go through exactly what those structures were. Yeah, but, Do you
1: have um, any sort of figures on that at the moment?
3: Look, at this stage, the, number, the numbers we've had reported back are, is around about 12 structures. But what we don't know yet is we're still going to you know, fully analyse it, speak to people about whether that was, was that a home? You know, was that an outbuilding, a shed? But as you can imagine, in amongst the mining leases there, there's a, there's a myriad of different types of structures, but at this stage, around 12.
1: So you've got teams out there assessing that at the moment? We do. Mm. And how significant is the threat to grow expect expected to be?
3: Look, give, given the weather we have today and the amount of active fire, we, we've seen an increase in activity already to the south of Glengarry. So, look, it, it, there is a, a very real threat to Grawin today. The fire has to move several kilometres to get into that, that part of the community. But the fire distance, the travel we saw the fire take yesterday, it is possible. But again, as I say, lots of crews out there doing their best to black out the most dangerous edges. Aircraft are already at work and will continue to keep the community up to date and, 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 you know, through radio as well. And how
1: big is that community? How many people are we talking? How many structures?
3: Look, into Glengarry itself, as I say, we saw about that that 12 impacted yesterday out of, you know, um, ultimately those that it looked like affecting was just a couple of hundred. Mm. Um, And then as it goes into Grawan itself, we're talking another couple of uh, about 100 to 150 Actual properties and structures.
1: Have, have, uh, mo- have most people evacuated?
3: Look, a lot of people have chosen to stay. Some people chose to leave early yesterday. Um, in Grow itself today, we're working with the community there to be able to say to people, look, if your plan is to leave, leave early. Now is the time to leave. We're not doing evacuations. Some people have chosen to leave, but some people have chosen they're prepared. Mm. And they want to stay and be part of defending their property.
1: And there are some uh, uh, emergency shelters in Lightning Ridge. Is that right? Is it a bowling club?
3: That's right. At the bowling club in Lightning Ridge, an evacuation centre was set up there yesterday. Should people, you know, make that choice? Um, And we saw about a dozen people who took up that option yesterday afternoon. They've been well looked after there. Um, People will make that decision again during the afternoon. Um, but we've also seen a lot of people return to their properties
1: as well. Right, okay. And they're helping out with the fire effort uh, there as well. Uh, and how big is the fire? So it was uh, in the t- t- uh, up to the 20,000 hectares, something like that?
3: Just under 20,000 hectares. Yep. Um, and so, look, we saw a significant increase yesterday. I think mm. it burned about four or 5,000 hectares just in the afternoon. Yep. Um, and look, whilst we've got... All this, there's action occurring as such around where it's impacting properties and we're defending those properties. We also continue to work around the containment as well on the on the southern and, and western side, but still a lot of work to do. And as I say, we're already seeing an increase in activity today.
1: And mainly grass, it's a, a, a grass-fed or is it undulating country? It's pretty flat.
3: It's pretty flat. A lot of scrubby, a lot of grass in amongst it. Obviously, there's a lot of tracks and the like through it because of the, the, the type of use in this area. But look, you know, we've seen such good growing conditions for so many years and that's all dried out now. So the fuel loads in this area is- higher than we would normally see which is obviously feeding these fires.
1: Deputy Commissioner Peter McKechnie, uh, thanks for that. And a reminder too, uh, obviously to keep listening to ABC local radio for any updates uh, and it doesn't sound like the weather conditions are particularly kind so uh, we need to keep a watching brief of that. Uh, Deputy Commissioner, thanks for that. Thank you. It's uh, coming up to 13 minutes past 13 minutes past 12.
0: ABC listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music, and more.
1: You're listening to The Country Hour
4: on ABC Radio New South Wales.
1: Well, rice growers are reporting the worst duck problems they have battled in decades, some say four decades at least, and many people have been forced to re sow crops that have been wiped out. Ducks have bred up in massive numbers since, uh, and we're just talking about there, the last year, the last couple of years, wet weather and despite their best efforts, growers are struggling to keep them at bay. Angus Furley spoke to Elder Swan Hill agronomist Pat Conlon about the duck problem.
5: The
2: duck numbers are huge at the moment. At a Sunrise meeting earlier this season, they quoted that last year we had one million ducks, and this year it's four million, so the pressure is certainly up there. One local grower out at York tells me that this year's duck pressure is the worst he's seen in his 44 years of growing rice by a long way.
6: Yeah, okay, so that that's a big big statement then, that uh, yeah, more than four decades of growing rice and this is the very worst.
2: Yeah, it certainly is, like it's just getting to the stage where rice bays are actually getting wiped out overnight uh, and ducks are probably a lot smarter than we actually give them credit for so often we'll be, you know, check them at Similar times, so you might check them before you go to bed and when you get up first thing in the morning and even one grower on top of that pays a uh, shooter to come out of town and from all reports, they're not seeing many at all, hardly any. But still, over the last three nights, we've had three bays or so, so wiped out uh, overnight um, and sort of we're thinking they're probably coming in around 2 to 4 o'clock in the early morning.
6: Right. So if you've got entire bays that are getting wiped out, I mean, is that rice going to come back or is it is it done for?
2: Yeah. So it's actually, there's a lot of resows going on at the moment to the extent that the the local seed depot, uh, you actually can't get rice. You have to wait until the final day to get rice just because they're so banked up.
6: Yeah. Okay. So you can't get rice. And, and is it getting too late if you were going to attempt to resow? Oh,
2: look, it is getting late, but um, to an extent, like we're already a fair way in um, cost-wise, so it's also about making some of that money back as well. But, yeah, so we're trying to do whatever we can. Like we're using lights and gas guns, plenty of shooters, but, yeah, the numbers are just huge.
6: You do hear some people say that, you know, you you can get the shooters in and then that will deter the ducks and they might not come back, but it, it sounds like what you're saying is that that's not the case.
2: If you talk to the old cockies they tell you that you you gotta go really hard on them early. But there's just so many numbers this year that it's just it's becoming really hard to control. And even growers that are going around, you know, all sorts of hours in the morning, the ducks just keep coming back. So there's, there's really only so much you can do.
6: So it really must oh be incredibly frustrating and must have people just tearing their hair out.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, as I was saying, there's there is a lot of re-sewing going on and that hurts. And, you know, even if you're ESA, there's no guarantee that the ducks aren't going to smash you again.
6: It sounds like there really aren't a lot of good options then. Uh, not particularly, mate.
2: you just got to keep on to them. And um, the, the other problem is that when they get so bad, they actually put holes in the rice. And um, so even once the rice is established, they'll keep flying into those holes uh, into January. And they'll sort of work out from those holes and the holes will just keep getting bigger and bigger.
6: Okay, so pockets of the crop where there's just just nothing growing. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And is it just the case that obviously last year it just didn't seem to stop raining, which was great great breeding conditions for all sorts of animals? And is that what's happened with the ducks, that they just built up in massive numbers and they're still there?
2: Yeah, so just with all the floodwater in last year, it's plenty of bred up. And, I mean, the same goes for snails as well. I mean... We're starting to find uh, snails in paddocks which actually weren't in rice last year and typically you do find snails in rice on rice but given all the flood water, these paddocks were effectively inundated and the snails seem to have got a life cycle in and hatched, uh, laid eggs and um, now they're showing up in this year's rice crops. So, yeah, all sorts of issues coming out of last season.
6: And with the ducks, is it in terms of the area that you cover, is it particular pockets that are worse than others or is it just a a widespread problem
2: oh no so we we sort of cover east of swan hill but even out at denny like hearing some shocking stories so yeah it seems to be very widespread
6: i suppose it's the case with all things agriculture but it, it sounds like a tricky business trying to grow rice
2: it sure is mate it's um sort of a lot of it's up to mother nature if we can lose these windy days and get some really nice hot weather we'll be away
1: Hot weather to get the crop away and away from the ducks. It's uh, 18 minutes past 12. That was uh, Elders Swan Hill agronomist Pat Conlon speaking there to Angus Verley.
0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. $10
1: 10 million dollars has been allocated to water New South Wales to help regional towns improve dam safety and water quality. The minister Rose Jackson says the plan is to use the expertise of water New South Wales to accelerate the response to water quality risks in regional and remote areas. The funding will give extra support for dam safety and risk assessments and monitoring raw water to identify changes in quality so councils can then adjust treatment processes or maybe switch to alternative supplies before it's too late. I also asked Minister Rose Jackson about the protests in regional towns next week about changes to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and the impacts of buybacks on productive agriculture. But first, let's hear about the boost in funding for water quality.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the big lessons from the last drought is that for a lot of the local water utilities who have smaller dams, um, you know, who are really critical part of their local water security, managing those dams as water levels fall, and in particular the impact that has on water quality, also dam safety, is a really significant issue. And one of the things that I'm really, really keen to do is not just learn the lessons of the droughts, but actually do something about acting on the things that we learned. And so we've put $10 million um, into Water New South Wales to assist local water utilities with exactly this challenge. How, as water levels drop, in these critically important dams, they can ensure that the quality of the water remains high, and that dam safety issues are properly addressed.
1: So, what are they going to do? Put in desalination plants, or more infrastructure to hold back water? What sort of things?
0: Look, it's more so the infrastructure around the dam itself. Uh, you know, as water levels do drop in the dam, the way that water is released and the infrastructure to manage that can make a big difference um, to the quality. There's also issues around catchment management. Again, as the catchments around dams um, become drier, particularly if they're impacted on like with things like bushfires over the summer, um, that can have a huge impact on the water quality in the dam. And so spending money on catchment management um, can also assist on making sure that the water that is in the dam is high quality. So again, the things that we sort of learned last time are Water New South Wales as a major dam owner and operator actually has a whole lot of expertise around this kind of stuff and it can partner with local water utilities to make sure that they have the expertise and the infrastructure to make the most of the dams that they do have
1: but I guess the thing is if you don't have the rain you don't have the water then you 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 know you're going to see rivers like the darling you know and um, the peel and near uh, Tamworth they are going to dry out
0: yeah I mean look you are right this is one part of the work that we can do because there's, you know, If there's no water coming into the dam, that's a huge challenge. I mean, also not everywhere in regional New South Wales has a dam um, that they rely on. And so, sure, this $10 million, I think, is a really useful contribution to ensure that the dams that we do have are managed absolutely as well as they can be, but It's absolutely not the entire drought preparedness work that we're doing because there is a lot of other work that we have to do, Um, you know, if we do see drying conditions continue to make sure that we're prepared. But, you know, this is a key part of what we learnt last time would be useful. And so it's useful um, to make sure that as we prepare, and particularly while the storage levels are still high, I think that's a critical point is that this work has to start when the dams are still relatively full.
1: Now, Nick, I want to ask you about these protests next week. Farmers, New South Wales Farmers Association, National Farmers Federation, New South Wales Irrigators Council, and a number of local councils. Uh, you know, they're setting up these protests about the buybacks and general water management in the catchment, in the particularly the Southern Riverina. I gather there's a protest slated for. Griffith as well. They're saying that Labor is waging a war against productive agriculture. How do you respond to that?
0: that that's not something that I accept. You know, I, we are doing absolutely everything we can to ensure that we're supporting our farmers and our agricultural sector. Um, You know, I don't think that that's a fair characterisation of the approach that we're taking. I can absolutely understand that they have some concerns around, you know, the work that the Commonwealth is doing through their Restoring Their Rivers Bill. Um, You know, I fully um, accept and respect their right um, to express their frustrations about that. I have also voiced um, some frustrations. But, you know, from the New South Wales government perspective, as I said, I'm regularly meeting with um, farmers and landowners, and you know, feel as though that's been a really productive engagement.
1: They're also talking about the uh, you know new regulations, the water metering, the crackdown there that you are talking about. Bit of a bit of a carrot, but also a bit of a stick for those people that aren't you know on board or or making enough of an effort. They're also saying too much attention is put on the southern irrigators. This, this is coming from the southern guys, and not enough on the northern guys.
0: Oh, I mean, I don't accept that at all. We are absolutely determined to ensure that across the board, metering and monitoring is rolled out. I, I, you know, We are deeply engaged in ensuring that there's compliance statewide. That's not in any way, I, I think, a you know, characterization of the approach that we're taking. We, we want to identify where non-compliance is happening and focus in on those areas. And that is a statewide approach that we are taking.
1: The the difficulty in getting these processes up and going, they say, in many cases, the Northern guys say it's not their fault.
0: Yeah, and I accept to the extent that there are legitimate reasons why that's been hard, that that's a barrier. So part of the review that we're doing is absolutely about having you know an open and honest conversation about, it is hard to find the metering technology. It is hard to find the duly qualified persons to install those meters. So to the extent that those are genuine and legitimate barriers, we are really up for a conversation about how we constructively overcome those. As I said, you know, we, we want to make it easier. We want people to be able to comply. The non-compliance action only occurs when we've done all that work, we've given people pathways and they're sort of still not doing it. Well, obviously that's not acceptable from my point of view, but to the extent that those concerns have been raised, we are all ears and really want to hear and talk about what we can do to overcome some of those legitimate
1: barriers. Just finally, one last point. Some people are saying, you know, if if people don't do the right thing, that the government has a capacity to actually cancel people's water licences. Is that something you'd look at as, a, as an extreme example?
0: Look, I think it is a bit extreme, um, but I suppose in the context of repeated and consistent refusal to adhere to the rules that everyone um, works under, sure, you know, there are things that we should consider. I mean, when someone doesn't do the right thing, all that does is make it harder for people who do. People who have gone out, got the meters, found the duly qualified persons, and are doing what they should be doing. If someone is acting outside that consistently, repeatedly, well, that just impacts everyone else. But look, in the you know most of the compliance action that we're looking at isn't that extreme. Um, but you know, sure, in the context of people who just consistently, willfully refuse to adhere to the rules that everyone else is re- adhering to, you know, we will look at that really seriously.
1: That's Water Minister Rose Jackson. It's 26 past 12.
0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
4: You're listening to The Country Hour.
7: On ABC Radio, New South Wales.
1: Well, here's some extra good news for steak lovers. Northern New South Wales company Jack's Creek has taken home the title of World's Best Steak at the 2023 World Steak Challenge. Two days of judging took place in the Netherlands before an award ceremony held in London this week, which also saw the Willow Tree-based operation take out the Best Sirloin and Oceana's Best Steak Award as well. It's the third time, of course, it's the third time that Jack's Creek has won the World's Best Stake title, and Managing Director Patrick Warmore spoke to Lara Webster about what it means to be champions again.
8: Yes, we've been fortunate enough to win World's Best Stake in London, and yeah, the first year of the event, 2015, we we won World's Best Stake Producer, and then we did it again in 2016, yeah, but we got pipped at the post in 2017 as we went for a hat-trick, so yeah, thrilled to be able to take home the gong in yeah, nine years since the event started. Give us a bit of a rundown of the piece of meat. So we won three awards. So we, uh, we won Oceana's Best Steak, we won World's Best Sirloin and then World's Best Steak. And those three awards were all won with a, uh, a Wagyu Cross sirloin. It was specifically a F2 to F3 Wagyu Cross. So that's anywhere from 75% to 88% Wagyu. Uh, And, yeah, the animal was backgrounded uh, at our property at Breezer and then it was grain fed on the Darling Downs at Lemon Tree Feedlot and then processed at uh, at Casino Abattoir. But, uh, you know, the key is obviously the whole life cycle in Wagyu uh, from, you know, the breeding, the breeding development, genetic development in Wagyu over the uh, the last 30 years has been immense um and then you know the animal husbandry and lifetime nutrition um has it's just become so much more advanced these days but uh the the entry was a marble score 9 so uh it's got as much marbling as we can physically count in the product uh and that's key because that's where you get all of your flavor and uh and yeah it w- it obviously performs really well so
6: well my mouth uh is watering <laughs> but yeah. You have, uh, or your family, were one of the first to really breed, process and market Wagyu beef. So I guess you've been there since the beginning of the industry here in Australia. So what has the journey been like to, to get where you are today?
8: Well, it's been long, um, but most importantly, it's been a lot of fun. We love what we do. Uh, so, uh, you know, it was a new breed back in the 90s, so um, have all of that fun about being First to market and developing a product, and then you know through the um, you know through the teens and even before then, when Wagyu was growing very very fast, you're part of that. You're part of the, the whole branded beef revolution uh, and providence um, around food products, and we've been able to you know be part of those waves in I guess beef and and food, and it's it's been just a lot of fun to be honest. And when things are fun, you stick out of it and you keep doing it. So we're just really thankful. To, um, yeah, to everybody in Australia that um, has supported Jack's Creek or is just in the industry uh, because, yeah, it's a wonderful industry to be part of um, and it's got a very, very bright future.
6: How do the, the cattle you breed today compare when you look back to what you started with?
8: Well, when we started, um, you know, it was about convincing people that there was actually wagyu outside of Japan because, as you know, Wagyu means beef of Japan. Uh, and so that was like the first hurdle that we've actually got cattle in Australia that are, that, that are actually bona fide Wagyu. And then I guess the next step was uh, developing, I guess, the marbling uh, quality. And in those days, yeah, we are producing a lot of two, threes and fours, whereas today, uh, you know, the, Wag, the Wagyu market is very much focused on delivering marble score six to nine, which is at the upper end of the marbling scale, so that customer that wants that really intense Wagyu flavour, or a um, you know just a, a really good experience. So it's massively changed since um, when we started.
6: How likely do you think it is you could do this for a fourth time, win that <laughs> win that world's best steak title?
8: Well, we got we missed out on the hat trick, so actually you know, we're, we're we're one out of three. So we're focusing on trying to get the next two, so we can get the hat trick done. <laughs> I think that I think that'll make it six, right? Or five, sorry. So that that that's our goal, if I'm um, to be a little bit humble.
1: <laughs> to be a little bit humble, Jack's Creek managing director Patrick Warmore speaking to Lara Webster about winning the world's best stake title for the third time. It's been going for 9 years and they've won it three times. So, uh I just wonder what happened the other years. You're listening to the <laughs> You're listening to the country out. It's 29 minutes to one. And those it's. DM Argentinians, <laughs> it's, I, it's, so, I reckon, sorry, might Sorry, I'll turn uh, your mic up. Yeah, sorry, yeah.
9: what you say? Oh, the the Argentinians might have uh, claimed <laughs> yeah, I'm those, not sure. those first.
1: Yeah, I'm yeah. not sure who they. Yeah. They they've they got beaten in the second place like a couple of times. I reckon that
9: would be the hardest prize in the
1: world. The world's best stage. To win. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. there's, you know, a lot of variation, you would have thought. And, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, they got the. They had a um, score, uh, uh, a marbling score of nine. I think you know that's Mm. like the maximum you can sort of get for the and and wagyu. So, well, and Australians do wagyu pretty well these days. So, Mm. I mean, with all the demand for wagyu in Japan,
9: a beef tasting like a wine tasting, where you you don't actually drink it, you just sort of chew a bit. No, no, I think they'd get be the eating taste. it.
1: I think <laughs> they'd be eating it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> yeah I reckon. I reckon they're up for that. Yeah. Might not be that large, but yeah, yeah. I yeah. suppose Might yeah. get you drunk. I suppose. No, <laughs> that's you true. Do drink it. Nah. That's true. But uh, actually, but going with a nice. Uh, Australian red as well, I reckon that'd be Ooh, way to yeah. go, for yeah. sure, yeah. absolutely.
9: There's a bit of crust yeah. on that steak Yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah. All right. I thought, I thought the... that would appeal to you. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Made into
1: the butcher straight after this. <laughs> so um, what, what, else, what else is making news yeah, apart from the okay. world's best steak?
9: Yeah, uh, the Federal Infrastructure Review has been handed down with uh, money pulled uh, from a number of projects. Uh, probably one of the big ones was the two billion dollars funding that was committed to the Great Western Highway through the Blue Mountains. So that's gone. Uh, that was the overall plan included the tunnel underneath Mount Victoria, but, but we the,
1: already knew about
9: that. I right? think we knew yeah. that wasn't going to yeah. that yeah. wasn't going to happen. but yeah. this is it's it's formally been um, been put in the bin. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, federal parliament is debating emergency laws uh, following the uh, release from immigration detention. Uh, whose detention was deemed unlawful. Um, there, uh, the laws proposed the use of ankle bracelets and uh, curfews uh, to monitor the uh, more than 80 people that have been released into the community. Uh, the unemployment rate's uh, risen to 3.7%. Now, that was despite the creation of 55,000 jobs. Uh, economists saying it's a bit of a, a technical sort of correction because the participation rate's up. Are- and so that's why uh the unemployment rate has, has ticked but still is heading
1: in the right direction yeah. according to our new governor michelle bullock so yes, she wants right. to see an unemployment go up a bit
9: yeah exactly yeah um but it's still regarded as fairly strong mm, yeah,
1: yeah it is yeah, yeah that's right
9: um the u.s president joe biden and chinese president xi jinping uh have met uh, at the APEC summit in San Francisco, Joe Biden is currently speaking at the moment, so we'll find out very shortly what uh, the outcome of those talks.
1: You said he, uh, they made be. real progress.
9: Yeah, they're talking uh, including rooming, what they say is resuming military-to-military communications. So I suppose that's sort of a well. They
1: didn't talk about that balloon that went. Apparently, they refused oh, that, to. That wasn't on take the agenda. phone calls. No, no, no. When it happened. Oh, when it happened. Yeah, yeah they refused. Yeah,
9: they haven't to... spoken for no. more than a year. Apparently. No. Yeah, yeah, which is yeah. bizarre. So it'll be interesting what uh, what comes out of that. He only started speaking a couple of minutes ago. So, uh, right. We haven't got.
1: Well, to... that's okay. Well, we'll forgive you for that.
9: Yeah, I know. I've got other things to do. <laughs> Otherwise, I would be down there listening to it. Now McDonald's has lost a case in the federal court. It sued Hungry Jack's. uh, uh, They claimed the consumers would confuse the Hungry Jack's Big Jack Burger with the McDonald's Big Mac, and that would (laughs) eat into its profits. Have you ever walked into a McDonald's thinking you're in a Burger King? (laughs) No. I asked this question downstairs, and one bloke said, "Well, yeah, late one night, I
1: thought (laughs) after forty-seven beers." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. There you go. (laughs) Well, that is so. They lost that case. Uh, they lost yeah. that case. So, unsurprisingly. Yeah, the,
9: the big Jack. Mm, the big Jack lives. lives. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> survives another
1: day. Okay, but I prefer a steak. Yes, I'll mm. be having a steak. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks for that, Adam. Adam's story there with the news headlines. It's twenty-five minutes to one. Let's find out what's happening with the uh, weather. And uh, Jake Phillips is at the bureau. Good afternoon.
10: Good afternoon, Michael. All that talk about steak. Ah, making... Getting hungry. It's, just, it's, just it's nearly lunchtime. lunchtime. That's right.
1: Yes, indeed. Could do it a good steak. Yeah, so the Wagyu steak will set you back about 120 bucks a kilo at least, though. So that's oh, yeah. a lot of money for those got sort of dedicated. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah. a real connoisseur. Mm, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now and then, though, you know, special
10: occasions. Oh, yeah. yeah, I do mind exactly. out for a good steak.
1: Yeah, that's right. Quite right. Yeah. Um, now, uh, in terms of the weather, not the great weather conditions for those, for those fires, Lightning Ridge and uh, Walgett sort of area?
10: No, pretty dry out there today uh, for the most part uh, and to make things worse we could even see a few thunderstorms out there this afternoon and if they develop they're unlikely to produce much rain if, if any. So we've already, we're already looking at uh, high to extreme fire danger through that region with uh, fairly fresh winds pushing through from the west and
1: uh, that's They're not expecting much rain there either. It's sort of going to not miss them. That I think. In, yeah.
10: No, that's right. Uh, so if we do see any storms, we'll get the lightning, but without the rain. Whereas further east along the, the Tablelands and maybe some parts of the coast in the north as well, we could see some thunderstorms with a, a bit of patchy rain in them. So, uh, yeah, really uh, varied conditions across the state with those dry, hot conditions over the northern inland, uh, and then a little bit cooler near the coast, but still reasonably humid and some thunderstorms developing this afternoon. Uh, nothing developing as yet, but we are anticipating that the, the main watch area will be along the ranges from, from about the central ranges around Blue Mountains Way and right up through to the Queensland border, and also the coastal districts in the north as well, mid-north coast, far north coast. In those areas, some of the thunderstorms this afternoon could potentially become severe, so if you're in that part of the world, keep an eye out for thunderstorm warnings that may be issued uh, as the afternoon progresses.
1: Yeah, I heard some reports of like 100 millimetres as possible. Is that likely in New South Wales?
10: Uh, don't, not for New South Wales, I would right. I think. Uh, Maybe in storm, Queensland. Yeah, that sounds like more the sort of thing you get up where you get close to the tropics in Queensland. Next week, different story, so we'll have a chat about that in a moment. But, but today, I think underneath the storm, even in those coastal areas, you'd be lucky if you saw, saw more than 20 millimetres and it'll be quite hit and miss. So a lot of places will either miss out altogether.
1: And it's not going to altogether. extend inland too much either?
10: Not in terms of the severe storms. No, it's really along the coast and, and divide. Um, inland, just a one or two patchy um, falls in the, in the west, and northwest, but most places won't see anything. So remaining generally dry inland.
1: Right. and next week, what's happening?
10: Uh, so, well, before we get to next week, we'll have, we'll have a little bit of respite the next couple of days. So still some storms in the northeast corner tomorrow, but less than the last few days. Uh, and then over Saturday, mostly dry, just the slight chance of a shower storm over the northwest inland. But from Sunday, we'll start to see a new low-pressure trough deepen over the inland part of the state. And that's then going to remain pretty slow moving right through the coming week. So from Sunday and this stage, at least till Friday next week, we're looking at a a pretty unsettled phase. So a large portion of the state could see uh, showers and storms, particularly perhaps uh, peaking us sort of around midweek. And underneath those storms will be a fair bit of moisture being drawn down from the tropics. So these storms will have a lot of moisture to work with. So locally next week, we could see some heavier falls underneath the storms. But again they will be patchy it's not going to be uniform um, rainfall across the region
1: okay so they might we might see the uh, millimetres getting up a bit then next week
10: yes that's right particularly sort of from monday through till uh, say thursday depending on how this system develops um that's the period to keep an eye out for so hopefully some of that will fall in the areas where it's needed But as always, we'll be seeing some lightning with it as well. So the the obvious hazards come with that. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. Mm. um, Hopefully it can be of some use.
1: And it won't extend too far inland by the sound of things. We're mainly talking about the coast, north coast, mid-north coast, maybe some into around Tenderfield.
10: Well, it does look like some of the... Central inland could see some oh, okay. some of this activity during the middle early to middle part of next week. So through the central west and, and maybe parts of the Riverina, but once we get into the far west, so once we get past about Cobar, um I don't know that we'll see too much out that way. It'll be a lot more isolated in that that far western portion.
1: Right. Okay. All right. So a bit of a uh, bit of activity in the next week or so. Uh, thanks for that, Jake. No trouble. Thanks, Michael. It's uh, 20 minutes to one here on the Country Hour. You're listening to the Country
9: Hour
4: on ABC Radio New South Wales.
1: A WA farmer says Pacific Seeds Garrison canola variety has underperformed this season. In fact, he's recorded a 21% mortality rate and he wants compensation. John Snook farms just west of. uh, Curtidan uh, uh, in uh, the WA wheat belt and he says that uh, Pacific Seeds via its entity Advanta uh, did offer a refund for the cost of the seed around $21,000 but John says that's not enough. He wants the company to recognise and compensate for the loss of potential canola production which in his case adds up to around $73,000. John Snoop told Valinda Barischetti Bar- 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 that the performance of this canola variety is a stacked herbicide tolerant hybrid. He said it is unacceptable.
11: Uh, The performance of the Garrison XC canola seed has been poor, Belinda. We applied the first Roundup spray and had a 21% mortality. So that that wasn't a good start for the variety. But thereafter, the ones that survived displayed very poor vigour. And the end yield result has been very disappointing.
4: Just to be clear, what is the exact name of the seed we're talking about?
11: Garrison XC. It is a dual tolerance, herbicide tolerant canola, I suppose. It's Roundup Ready tolerant, but also tolerant to Clearfield or Imi sprays.
4: And what is the seed meant to deliver? What does it promise?
11: Uh, It's a high yielding package and... It also offers the ability to tolerate the imi herbicide residue, which is the reason we grew it. So it was the first time we'd ever chosen a dual-tolerant canola. Uh, It has been promoted by the company as a canola to fit this purpose. So we jumped on board with our agronomist advice, but we've been completely let down, Belinda, because the seed just wasn't fit for purpose.
4: And what did the companies say? What was the response from the company when it was raised with them that that looks like that, you know, they're seeing these sort of losses in the field?
11: I had no response from the company, disappointingly. Before Harvest, I wanted the issue cleared up. As best we could, I reached out to them and they were actually honest. They said, John, we've got nothing to offer you. I'm sorry. Uh, You're going to have to go down your pathway you need to for your business, which I have done since and I've lodged a complaint with the Department of Consumer Protection and they've been fantastic and interestingly, once that complaint was lodged, I received a call from the company, but that was sort of more a smooth over sort of tactics, just a a communication strategy they have employed and they said, John, whenever you're ready to talk further about the issue, give us a buzz. So, I considered our position and Called them back and I did an economic analysis on our production loss, but they're not interested, Belinda, in production loss. They're only interested in refunding the cost of the seed and forcing growers to sign a non disclosure agreement.
4: So that was the offer. What did you take?
11: I haven't taken anything, Belinda. I, I, I'm not comfortable with a refund of the seed because the issue is about production and the loss of production. We buy canola seed with an expectation that it will meet the national variety trial data. And this variety is so far below that.
4: What did you see? What were your observations in the field with this canola seed?
11: Well, it was mortality of the young canola. That was very, very evident. But also the lack of response to crop husbandry around fertilisers. It just didn't respond like the other varieties. Plus, we witnessed in the, in the hot spells that we've had during the spring that the, the flowers just fell off the garrison. It sort of threw in the towel, Belinda, relative to other varieties alongside, which did a remarkable job in difficult conditions to get a, a good yield. This variety is just poor. So they must have known that. I, I just can't see how a, a big corporate canola breeding company would not know if they didn't know, how do we trust them going forward?
4: What have you heard from other growers? Is it a similar story in terms of that mortality rate?
11: Uh, very much so. The ones that have been affected and have sent their seed off for independent testing have in- even incurred a higher rate of mortality. I'm possibly at the lower end.
4: I think you said earlier, John, that you are going to get back the, the, the cost of your seed. Is that, is that the deal that's been done with the company?
11: Oh, I haven't done a deal, and I'm not really intending on doing the deal, because. but to me it's not about a refund for the seed. They've got to recognise the production loss, which is more a compensation issue than a refund of the seed. I I don't want my seed refunded. I want the company to recognise that they've caused, intentionally by their poor due diligence, a massive production loss for this variety on my farm.
1: That's WA farmer John Snook, who says Pacific Seeds Garrison canola variety, uh, which uh, we do have here in New South Wales, has underperformed this season. He's recorded a 21% mortality rate. He believes that's unacceptable. He wants compensation, not just the money back for the seed. Advanta Seeds were unavailable for comment. However, Managing Director Andrew Short did say, Pacific Seeds has a well-defined process for addressing product complaints. We value our customers and take all complaints seriously. We are committed to working with individual growers to resolve any complaints and to ensure our relationship with them remains strong. It's coming up to 13 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Quite a few texts have come through. On the water meter, uh, Fred has texted in saying, how can you claim it's hard to get water meters onto irrigation pumps? He says, I guarantee if the government said any pump not with a meter by July 24." Licenses will be cancelled, he says. I guarantee owners would get onto them before then, says Fred. Although I think the issue is having the number of inspectors out there and some of those pumps coming in from overseas are not that easy to uh, get hold of in recent times, Fred. So that's some of the, the reasons for the delay there. Um, also, uh, someone's texted in to say they were in Geneva. Uh, jo- John from Armadale says he was in Geneva, Switzerland a few weeks ago and he spotted some Jack's Creek... Uh, steaks in the market he went to the butcher and he asked about them. butcher knew the warmolds as well um and he said uh he asked him what the cost was per kilogram 300 swiss francs which is about 600 dollars australian a kilogram so uh switzerland as we know extremely expensive place to live so especially if you want a steak by the sound of things and um someone else has uh, texted in saying uh, that uh the, in Victoria, they believed that uh, the, they actually reduced the duck season in Victoria. They made it earlier this year because the experts there said that they were running out of ducks. And now we're hearing, of course, that uh, duck numbers are the worst they've been around the, the rice, fa- rice farms. The worst they've seen for about 40, more than 40 years. And Kim and Goldman says the company, rice company should start using the garlic spray to control these pests, and it will deter the ducks as well. Just a thought there from Kim. It's uh, coming up to 11 to 1. ABC
0: Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music, and more.
1: Northern New South Wales soybean grower Stuart Larson says they've come a long way since they first planted a hemp crop a decade ago, from planting varieties not suitable to the local region to now breeding cultivars and running methane trials with cattle using the hemp as well. Come autumn, he says, they'll be looking to contract people to grow food-grade hemp as well. The founder of Mara Seeds uh, now runs three different businesses west of Casino based around hemp.
5: The farming side of it is is around what we're doing with the hemp. And about 10 years ago, we started to grow hemp, looking for a crop that would give us a break, as organic farming we are. And that break crop which we could do in nine weeks from start to finish uh, gave us a plant that was putting a lot of carbon back there and also uh, wherever we grow hemp we can grow any sort of crop behind it. It has that magic thing of putting, uh, leaving organic matter and carbon behind. But we've come a long way since we started. Uh, in our early days we just planted what we were told was would work. And Unfortunately, it hasn't worked that well because where we sit in latitude uh, is not suitable to a lot of the crops that, say, grow in Tasmania or Victoria. And so we've had to do a little bit of selection ourselves. And these days we've got a... Um, a, a doing IP and PBR on cultivars. And they'll become uh, public in, 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 in maybe in the um, autumn. And with yields out there, that uh, the old story—you'll um, uh, always make higher yields will make you more money than price. So we've we've got that up to where it's probably one and a half to two tons to the hectare. And uh, the demand for that product back into the food industry is sell any that we can get, we can grow. Mm-hmm. So we're looking to contract people come autumn and. Uh, we've got a food grade plant that's all designed for handling that product and that's into making food grade products so but the bio, biomass or the overburden is a, still a very valuable part even in the in the industrial hemp side.
12: Did you ever want to give it away, give up a, and move um, on to a, a different crop or were you always determined to find a, a solution?
5: No well w- when we decided that we weren't getting happy with our varieties or color bars we then brought a team aboard which was international, and we thought this will be simple. It wasn't. It, 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 we lost a lot of money. It would have been easier to walk away from it, but the value in the, if you look at the value in just the carbon value in in hemp, it's huge. And I think that it's under-recognised a long, long way by anybody, and uh, it's, not, it's not on the front page of a newspaper, but it should be. The best way I put it. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, th- I, I guess it would be easier um, and do the standard thing, but I see the value in hemp being huge across the board.
12: And so your trials are being run undercover in, in a greenhouse environment?
5: Um, so we've taken it from, we were growing uh, all indoors, and then we went uh, purely because the cost of growing indoors is very expensive. So we then went to shade cloth covered areas and that's how we grow the main part now. Our nursery doesn't get used as much but we grow under, under with using standard equipment like your, your rotary hoe or, or your, whatever you use, your header, the whole thing, standard header. And that's, that's worked well for us but we also are growing in the field under irrigation. That's on Riverbank Country more trying to get it like the standard person, would, how they would grow it, rather than, you know, growing in pots and whatever indoors is. Labor-wise alone is huge and the electricity bills are over the top.
12: And tell me about the research you're doing with cattle and hemp and methane reduction.
5: When you're trying to suppress the methane, we came up with a theory that, which used hemp as, as the base, uh, there are other bits in it as well, but that'll be a granule that eventually that you can feed it with anything. We're running the the trials at the moment that we select out and they're tested for the methane as a control group. They're tested for the methane there at uh, Southern Cross Uni where they're doing the technical work. So it's independent of us. Uh, we'll be able to test things within a matter of two or three weeks, change that formula if we wish to, but at the moment, it's, it's, it's very attractive. Yeah.
1: Talking about the uh, hemp industry there, Stuart Larson from um, Malanganini, and uh, there was uh, also some results available from, the, from that trial very soon. You're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC
4: Radio, New South Wales.
1: Well, let's look at wine now because an orange winemaker has recently received one of the industry's top gongs for his contribution to leading and developing developing the orange wine region. The Graham Gregory Award is presented by the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries to winemakers to help advancing the wine region as a whole. Tom Ward from Swinging Bridge Wines has uh, been involved in the industry for quite a long time. He's uh, developing his own successful wine business and he's speaking here to our reporter Hugh Hogan.
7: So mum and dad um, had a farm in Canoundra um, and my mother's family has been farming um, in the area so I think we are, I'm a fifth generation farmer. So um, we've been around a little bit, I suppose, now. And I think we've been able to do plenty of other things. Um, I was very lucky in the 90s, my uncle and my father set up a vineyard. And I was, while I was at university, I was involved in assisting in that, um, earning the money for the uni beer, I suppose, <laughs> um, and fell in love with it all. So it was a really um, nice thing to do. I went on and did further studies. I did go for a job anywhere in Australia and ended up getting a job here in Orange, and I then (laughs) haven't fallen fallen far away. So I was very lucky, a guy called Justin Jarrett took a chance on me as a young, person and we did a lot of vineyard development advising and it was sort of one of those ones it was one of those dream jobs where you actually got to learn see so many sites we were a young but enthusiastic and I think every time we came in with our enthusiasm everyone just let us um, go ahead and support us and that's been an amazing thing and I always say that to young people when they come into the industry just keep putting your hand up because uh, it, it is an amazing industry for that orange um, and Australia in the wine industry so to speak so started there and then um, I was lucky enough to work in orange and then I did go home and manage the family wine business um, and part of other farming. And, and that's when we had decided obviously to move up a bit later on, move up to Orange and saw the potential up here. So it's, it's been a, um, I'm feeling like an old man now, you know. I, it feels like I've uh, been around for a while, but I've been lucky to see a lot of different um, elements of the wine industry and really appreciate, I suppose, what we're lucky to have here in Orange. Tom Ward
1: from a Swinging Bridge Wines just outside of Orange and uh, a recent recipient of the Graham Gregory Award for his services to the wine industry. Let's go to markets.
2: Uh, 64, $70, $70, you 60.
12: Wagga
1: Sheep and Lambs.
12: Good afternoon. Lamb numbers dropped to 33,000 while sheep numbers surged ahead to 20,600. Not all buyers made it to the sale, however with the yarding lacking weight and quality it meant plainer lambs and store types were well represented. Buyers were forced to step up for any lamb showing finish with prices 10 to $20 dearer. Isolated sales more. 18 to 24 kilo, 90 to 141 20 to 26, 129 to 160, 26 to 30 142 to 168 over 30 kilos 157 to 179 heavy old lambs 118 to 171 reno lambs 60 dollars to 109 light lambs to kill 30 to 87 store lambs with weight and frame 40 dollars to 97 lambs to feed on topped at 125 hoggets were keenly sought the better end 60 to 97 dollars. a few pens of heavy mutton sold early this morning selling at 33 dollars to 50. I'm Leanne Duggs for MLA.
13: Double cattle. Numbers were backed by 260 for a yarding of 3,250. It was a fair to good quality yarding with some good young cattle to suit the feeders and processors along with some good runs of well finished ground steers, heifers and cows. There were also fair numbers of plainer quality boss indigas cattle mixed throughout. Young cattle of the trade were 10 cents dearer with the prime yearlings selling from 200 to 264. Feeder steers and heifers were up to 30 cents dearer with the feeder steers selling from 231 to 288. Feeder heifers sold from 178 to 241. Young cattle of the restockers were up to 40 cents dearer, with the young steers selling to 320 and the young heifers 244. Ground steers and heifers were 6 to 12 cents dearer, with the prime ground steers selling from 187 to 233, while the prime ground heifers sold from 176 to 214. Secondary cows were 5 cents dearer, though the properly finished cows were 7 cents cheaper. Three score cows sold from 140 to 169, well a prime heavyweight cow sold from 168 to 190 to average 179. Bulls were dearer, selling to 213. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. And to Yass cattle now.
9: Good afternoon.
3: Numbers lifted to 908 and the quality improved. There were plenty of cattle in forward condition with weight. Yearlings were well supplied and there was a good run of steers and heifers in the export run and around 115 cows were offered. Feeders and restockers were the strength. Buying all weights, the market sold from firm to dearer trends. Most wiener steers 202 to 252, the heifers 152 to 200 cents. Feeder steers lifted 20 to 30 cents on quality. Medium weights 165 to 241, heavy weights 170 to 226, and restockers paid up to 233. Feeder heifers... Gained 20 cents. The medium weights, 155 to 181. Heavy weights, 157 to 200. The medium and heavy trade cattle ranged between 185 and 195. Grown steers were firm, 158 to 198. The bullocks were dearer, selling to 218. And this has been Grown Richard.
1: And that's the market information for today. A reminder, keep listening to ABC Local Radio for any change to the fire situation. It's one o'clock.